Well, good morning. You can hear me okay, apparently. So my heart rate can drop after some excitement with the microphone just moments ago. But before that, we were celebrating with the choir, right? We were paying attention to the idea of joy coming to the world. That's when earth receives its king. That's when we make a place in our heart for him. That's when heavenly creatures and animals and plants and for all I know, rocks sing with joy. Beautiful idea that someone could enter the world and make such a dramatic difference so that everything everywhere would notice. Now, in our households, maybe things aren't quite so celebratory. I mean, you may have a tree with no space underneath it because there are so many gifts and the stockings are full and overflowing and you can't stick anything in there on Christmas Eve. I don't know. But I know that there might be a chair that's empty this year, possibly for the first time, but maybe over a lot of years. And you don't know how you're going to make it through this season with that absence. Maybe you're in pain or fear or doubt, and you're here wondering how you're going to make it through the end of the year. Our passage today tells us how you and I are going to make it through today. It's a passage about God's overwhelming love, which gives us confidence and hope, and how this fuels our love. Now, last week, Pastor Tim read the verse saying, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And today we're going to talk about how God lives in us and loves on us and how he makes his love complete in us, how he corrects our love. But if we're going to talk about loving, we're going to need a definition of love. And one way to understand the, what love means would be to look in a dictionary. No. Instead, let's look at a story that Jesus tells. What is love is a question that Jesus kind of indirectly answers when he's asked an entirely different question. Jesus does this kind of thing a lot, you'll notice. In this case, an expert in Moses's law asks Jesus how to inherit eternal life, asking the big questions, yay! And Jesus says, what does the law say? How do you read it? This is your domain, dude. That part isn't in the text. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. I heard somebody explaining that I'm sarcastic out in the lobby a little earlier and Maybe that's the lens with which I hear this answer, but maybe Jesus just has a twinkle in his eye. It depends on how you want to hear it. But what he's saying is, yep, give all you are to God and don't love yourself any more than you love any of your neighbors. And then you're all set. Done, right? How many here love all your neighbors as much as you love yourself? Yeah, me too. So Luke says this guy came into this, this 
conversation looking to justify himself. He wants Jesus to admire him, to praise him for his virtue. He wants to be acclaimed for his righteousness. He wants to be accepted by God and have that recognized by people. So this self-righteous lawman can't let Jesus's answer stand. And the best he can come up with is this follow-up question, who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus doesn't give this expert in the law the approval he seeks. He also doesn't explain it with a dictionary definition. He tells a story, and you've probably heard it before. I'm going to tell my version, but you can check my work in Luke chapter 10. Jesus tells of a man who's going down, and he's going down from the royal city, Jerusalem, over a thousand feet in elevation, and he's He's headed down winding, some places dark, often rough roads towards Jericho, which is below sea level. And ooh, that's foreshadowing because he's attacked by robbers. And what do they do? They take his clothes, not just his LV belt and his Hermes bag, but every stitch that's on the brother. And he's lying there and they beat him and they kick him and they leave him half dead. Oh, but somebody comes along. It's a pastor. Yay. And he takes one look at this baggage in the road and he veers around and goes on. And then somebody else comes along. <gasps> Good. And it's a church staff member. And they took one look and they go around him too. Oh, then a man from Samaria comes along and takes pity on the man. He goes to him. He puts Neosporin on his wounds. He binds them up. He, he puts the man in the back of his Ionic five and drives him to the nearest bed and breakfast. I told you I was updating it. He cares for him there. And then when he has to leave, he says to the host, Hey, I need to go. I'll be back. Here's a thousand dollars in cash. And here's my credit card. If there are any additional expenses and we'll settle up when I return. And Jesus asks a simple question. I think we can all get it. Which of these three men was a neighbor to the man left half dead? Was it the pastor? Was it the staff member? Or was it this guy they would never expect to help? And in this interaction, Jesus is pointing out to law dude that his idea of neighbor is way too narrow. Jesus is making it clear to the man as well that loving his neighbor is more difficult than he ever imagined. Loving is more costly for one thing than he expected. And that love was to be given to people who in this law guy's world are hardly even people. And we live in a world where people are full of hatred for one another. And you can think of divisions that we have within this country. You can look at the paper and see stories about Russia and Ukraine. You can see stories about Israel and the West Bank or Gaza. You can see India and Pakistan at it. You can see North Korea and Japan posturing near each other. And it seems like everybody has someone that they consider those people. And what Jesus says is those people are your neighbor. But fortunately, John has some instructions for us regarding how to love in a way that Laudweeb never imagined. So let's look briefly at today's text. Verse 13, we're going to talk about how he lives in us and loves on us, and we're not alone. This is how we know that we live in him 
and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Wait. So how do we know that we live in him? I would have thought the answer would be something like because we love him and others. That would fit tightly with what, but John is pointing out something even more fundamental than that. He's saying, okay, we, we live with him, in him, because we share his spirit. In other words, he has given of himself so that we can love one another and God can live in us. He's given of himself and fundamentally he's the source of the love that we have. We don't get the spirit because we have attained a level of love. It's not a prize because, oh, now you're this loving. Now you get the spirit. God knows we can't love the way he's called us to love. And we get the spirit to do works of love. We don't get the spirit to do works of power. We get the spirit to do works of love. You follow that? All spirit-powered love is powerful. And so, yes, it will be an act of power. But fundamentally, the spirit is given to empower our love. And that empowerment is going to be visible. Spirit-powered love is powerful because it's literally superhuman. It's greater than human capacity. Verse 14, and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. John says, we have seen, he saw, he literally saw, and the apostles saw the risen Jesus. They interacted with him. They did things together. They listened to him. But John doesn't just mean that they saw the risen Jesus. He's writing to people in Ephesus who have encountered the risen Jesus, even though they never saw him in the literal flesh. There are people like that in this room. People here who can tell you how they came to see Jesus, the son of the father, how he is savior and king. And that's what we're celebrating in this season, isn't it? That the creator of the world stepped into space and time and history, that he gave himself to people who were often hostile while he walked the earth and ultimately were homicidal toward him. And John in his gospel talks a little bit about this. In the very first chapter, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John's consistent message in his writings is that the people who should have received Jesus joyfully didn't but that that invitation is available to any who do recognize him as God's son. And John, the disciple Jesus loved, is one of those people who recognized him eventually. And he's experienced a full life in fellowship with God. He is in a real way reliant on God's love. Let's continue on verses 15 and 16. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Wow. Whoever lives in love. So wait, you told a story to define love. What is love again? Now, the yard sign says love is love. 
That's not a definition. So let's go back to why Jesus told that story in Luke. The law nerd knew what God's word said about love, and he thought he could do it. He thought it was doable in his own power, in his own strength, in his own self-justifying world, until Jesus reset the definition for him. And I said before that loving God and your neighbor means you're giving all you have to God, all you are to God, even bigger than have, and don't love yourself any better than you love your neighbor. You can't do that. I can't do that. You know who did do that? Yeah, I'm going to Jesus juke you. It was Jesus. Jesus came to the earth he created, the weakest possible being, a Jewish baby in Herod's territory. Do you know about Herod? The ruler who was so nervous about this anticipated king that he slaughtered infant male children in fear that somebody would supplant him. Can you imagine the boldness? Can you imagine the fearlessness, the heroic bravery of God's son coming into our selfish, bloody, brutish world so that we could experience the love of the father? Those epic character traits are how Jesus accomplished the task set before him, allowing him to complete our love. Because, oh yes, he's going to complete our love. He completes our love. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Record scratch, what? Now, John already told us in chapter two of this letter that at Jesus's coming, we could be confident and unashamed if we continue in him. I think he's mentioning it again because the day of judgment the day in which what is wrong is separated from what is right can be frightening. If we know our faults and our flaws and we can't lie to ourselves about their presence and their magnitude, how can we have confidence before a perfect God? In this world, John says, we are like Jesus. Okay, why are we like Jesus? Because we acknowledge him as our king. We get to be part of his kingdom. We get to follow him where he goes. We have been given of the spirit. We rely on God's love. We're with him. And then how are we like Jesus? We're in the world the same way that he was in the world. We're in the world he made that largely doesn't recognize him. We are in a world that's alienated from him. We're in a world that doesn't have the kind of love that John was talking about. Not naturally. And as Pastor Tim talked about last week, love that's a choice, love that's a promise, love that's characterized by loving kindness and deeds. And furthermore, we're like Jesus in being called to love others rather than being preoccupied with ourselves. And nothing cuts against the grain of our present culture and thinking than the idea of putting down my own agenda, my own passions, my own self-understanding to think of you and act on your behalf. <laughs> Truth be told, nothing cuts more against my own inclinations. And I've got to recommend, if you want to deal with this, write a sermon about love. And write a sermon about love when you've got somebody in your household that you love very much, and you have to serve them every day. And find yourself exposed for how short a supply of natural love you have. 
But Jesus lived in exactly that way, a way completely unlike my tendency. He's the king who shows up as a defenseless baby, lives as a commoner, worked as a servant, died a slave's death. He did that for me. He did that for you. And he invites you to join his band of followers seeking to love one another the way he loves us, using the gifts the Father has provided through his Spirit. And Jesus will be our judge. That doesn't strike terror in your heart if you love Jesus and if you know his character, his strength, his care, his love is complete reassurance. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Does my perfect love drive out fear? Well, if I ever have any perfect love, I will let you know. But the only perfect love that I've experienced is the love of my Savior and my God. You don't need to fear for judgment day or any day before it or after it if you know the one whose birth we celebrate. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And this is the capstone concept. God not only completes our love, he starts it. Now, our romantic stories often have a who loved whom first kind of aspect, right? Who noticed first? Who pursued whom? But God is the pursuer throughout the entire story of humanity. God looks for Adam and Eve to go for a walk. When Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They hide, and God has to pursue them. And we've been wary as uh, humankind ever since. But God has pursued us relentlessly. He's pursued our hearts. And Christmas is an example. It's an illustration. It's the reality of the lengths that he was willing to go to express that love for you and for me. And the story of the Samaritan who cared for someone who literally hadn't even a thread of clothing to offer him in return, couldn't talk back because he's half dead, that's part of the story. Luke knows perfectly well that Jesus was despised and rejected by the human family. And even though Jesus is confronting a lawmonger with the reality that his live, his love, it's a difficult word to say. It's even more difficult to live out. Is too small. He says, your love is too small without saying that. Luke is making clear that Jesus is the unexpected one who came along when you and I were dead in rebellion against God. He put this love in our hearts is what Keith Green used to sing. He made us brothers and sisters, taking away the reason for terror in the presence of God and replacing that terror with so much better love for the Father and for one another. And we need not only his supply, but we need his correction, his love correction, because we are so likely to fragment, so likely to oppose one another, so likely to willfully misunderstand others while expecting to receive the benefit of the doubt ourselves. Can I get an amen? Anyone who's ever been online, Okay, so he corrects our love, and there's no hate. He does correct us in our love, more particularly in the excuses that we give ourselves that we don't have to love. Every time we set that up as I don't have to love them, 
Oh, he's going to knock that down. And John says, we are liars if we claim to love God and hate one of our brothers or sisters. And this, we gather, is what the law noodler would have thought of the Samaritan. Maybe he could love a pastor. Maybe he could love a, love a staff member or even an injured countryman, but not them. <sighs> Which reminds me of a lesson I'm still attempting to learn that even Seahawks fans are made in the image of God. Verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And John Stott uh, pointed out that loving people is the easier task. That it is ludicrous, English pastor, uh, theologian, writer, for a person to say he loves God while he hates his brother should be clear from the fact that he can see his brother, but he cannot see God. Indeed, the verb indicates that not only he can see his brother, but that he has seen him. He has him continually before his eyes with ample opportunity to serve him in love. Okay. It's obviously easier to love and serve a visible human being than an invisible God and if we fail in the easier task, it is absurd to claim success in the harder. Oof. Verse 21, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And this is why I started with the parable of the Samaritan rescuer, because Jesus taught that love of God and love of our human family, these are inseparable. But we can know that with our intellect, and not reflect it with our words and with our actions. And I, for one, am much, much more loving in theory than in practice. And so I want to leave you with a little bit of a recap here. Love is what God has given us. He gives us affection to share back with him and with our brothers and sisters. God lives in us. God loves on us. And this ensures that we are never alone. We experience these wonderful riches by inclusion in Jesus's family with God, our father. But there are people that you know, people in this room, people in your family, people in your neighborhood, people in your workplace or at your school who feel very much alone, who aren't feeling love. And so I want to just take a moment, just a moment, and just think silently for a moment about someone that you feel like maybe God would have you love. I've got a different name than I had the last time I thought about this. Does a name or face come to your mind? Do you need to write it down? Text someone? Do it. Don't wait. I'm not telling you, hey, it's Christmas. It's time to evangelize. I'm telling you it's Christmas and there are hurting people who would appreciate a demonstration of concern and care. And I'm telling you that God put you in that position on purpose. All right. God completes our love and we need not fear God. <sighs> Maybe you personally see God as loving. You've experienced his provision for all your needs. He has met you in times of loss and sorrow, as well as in times of joy and fullness. But you ought to know that there are people that you know, including some in this room, who have been beaten half to death. Uh, 
perhaps not physically, but don't rule it out, and could use someone who knows the loving God, someone who knows the Jesus who, like the Samaritan in his story, was willing to step into an area already attacked by bandits to help someone who didn't know him. Who is that person who could use a note or a call or a text or a coffee? And then finally, I want to invite the choir up, and I'm going to step down. God, what does he do? He corrects our love. We are not called to hate. Now, Thanksgiving, we know, can be tough for families, for circles of friends where there's dissension or broken relationships, but Christmas is a whole nother level of difficulty because the season is longer. More people take time off and they're more free to get together and annoy one another. And most of all, I think because our expectations for the time and for other people around this season are unreasonably high. You may need to interact with people for whom you have, let's not call it hate, but let's call it lack of appreciation. Does a face come to mind there? The law buddy who asked the question of Jesus would never have imagined a Samaritan could be a neighbor, and Jesus corrected him. Can you take Jesus's correction and seek to give kindness to someone who isn't your favorite this December? It's okay if you continue into next year, by the way, but first things first. C.S. Lewis said this in closing, God who needs nothing, loves into existence, wholly superfluous, that's unnecessary to him, creatures in order that he may love and perfect him. Before the choir sings, join me in thanking God for his love and ask him for his help. And God, we thank you for stepping into our world for Jesus's willingness to deal with all the stuff that we deal with, but to do it perfectly. We ask that it wouldn't just be our trying harder, though we do want to pay attention, but you empowering us as we seek to love people, including people we don't particularly want to show love for. Would you soften our hearts in that way? And would you lead us into your way? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.